Do you want to know who's the hottest president? Doesn't make you glow to learn sick cabello. reward you will earn if you spend some time with us we all dress like your dad and wear glasses we assure you it's not that bad with three dudes wearing glasses my name is Gus, and I'm wearing a plain black t-shirt. My name is Mitchell, and I'm wearing a navy blue shirt with a whale tail on it. My name's Evan, and I'm wearing a green hoodie. And we are three dudes wearing plaid. Every week on this show, we learn something brand new. The only catch is we have no idea what we're going to be learning about yet. I have stuck so many cotton swabs up my nose in the past month, and frankly, I'm sick of it. If you had to estimate how many cotton swabs you have stuck up your nose, how many cotton swabs would that be? Well, realistically, I think it's only five, but that's still okay. a lot. Well, because you gotta stick them like this isn't this isn't your grandma's. Oh, just gently dab the inside of your nostrils. This is you gotta stick it way up in there. Yeah, how my grandma gently dabs the insides <laughs> of her nostrils on a regular basis. You know how grandmas have to do. It's a grandma job. It's required by law. <laughs> We're talking. We're talking about getting COVID tested because we're back on campus, just to clarify. We get tested twice a week, every week, and to get here, we had to do the spit test, which is also uncomfortable, but the nasal swab is really a special kind of uncomfortable. I was talking to my brother the other day, and he thinks that the amount of spit that you have to spit for the COVID spit test is a perfectly normal amount of spit that he can make with no trouble whatsoever, and I am terrified of him. Your brother is a llama. <laughs> He's a llama in human's clothing. Or a camel. Anything that spits a lot. Like, I get the the idea that, like, because I would agree with part of that sentiment, which is like, oh, it's a lot of spit, but it, it is doable. But the fact that it's a normal amount is a take that I, for one, am not willing to make. Exactly. It's an inherently incorrect take. I mean, I don't, I don't want to ask more about your brother's spit, Evan, but... <laughs> I just, is it like, when he talks, is there just like a small waterfall? No, no, totally normal. He just seems to think that the COVID spit test is just like a completely doable, normal, not daunting amount of spit. And it terrifies me. That is scary. Your brother is the next step in human evolution. <laughs> I don't like where we're going as a species. I'm done getting off the train now. I don't, I don't know, man. Like with what with the what with the cotton swabs I've had, I think I'm bothered by it just slightly less because I have tissues up my nose so often. I do too. Yeah, I have I have fr frequent nosebleeds. The thing is, I don't stick the tissue all the way up to my brain as if I'm getting it pulled out <laughs> with a mummy hook. Well. <laughs> I guess that's where you and I differ. They did do that with mummies, didn't they? They pulled the brain out the nose. Yeah, they had a special hook for pulling brain out nose. Yeah, they put a little jar. 
Wait, was the brain one of the... Because there were the four jars that the organs went in. Was the brain one of the organs that went in a little jar or not? I mean, I'm Googling it right now, obviously. Also, like, I would imagine it's not super intact once you've pulled it out of a nose. No. It's just going to be like brain bits. What were those four jars for? (laughs) Well, funny you should ask, Mitchell and Evan, because the Wikipedia page for canopic jar specifies that there were four jars, each for the safekeeping of particular human organs, none of which were the brain. It was the stomach, the intestines, the lungs, and the liver. The heart did not get a jar because Egyptians believed it to be the seat of the soul, so it was left inside of the body. So I guess the brain was just discarded because it wasn't important? And each of those jars has, like, a corresponding god that goes along with it. So the lungs are stored by a baboon-headed god called Hapi, who's the god of the north. Dumutaf, the god of the east, guards the stomach. Imsti, who is a human-headed god, which uh, has to be specified because it's Egypt, of the south guards the liver, and Kebehesunef, the falcon-headed god of the west, guards the intestines. Cool. Hey, if you had to guard one of those four organs, which one would you want to guard? (laughs) I'm calling dibs on the lungs. Ah, damn it. I wanted to be the baboon. Hmm. You know what? The liver, super important, super big. I I think I'll guard the liver because like alcohol and hemochromatosis. Why not? Yeah. I'll take the stomach then, I guess. The tongue. Hey, I'm looking at an Art World article by Sarah Cascone from May 6th, 2020, about archaeologists having uncovered an ancient Egyptian funeral parlor, revealing that mummy embalmers were also savvy business people. Oh. (laughs) This archaeological site was unearthed in 2018 in Saqqara, a necropolis about 20 miles south of Cairo, and it just sort of showed that the funeral parlor offered a bunch of different, like, business services. They sold funerary masks from ornate golden ones to cheap plaster ones embellished with gold foil, and the canopic jars, which stored the organs of the dead, could be made from alabaster or cheaper painted clay. The evidence we uncovered shows the embalmers had very good business sense, says Ramadan Hussein, an Egyptologist at the University of Tübingen in Germany. They were very smart about providing alternatives. <laughs> you could put your organs in whatever you could afford. I was about to make some some sly comment on, like, oh, that's like society today if you go to a funeral home and they sell you their merch, but, like... Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, the merch of the funeral home? <laughs> but, uh, but then I realized, no, wait, that's kind of basically what happens now. It's like, oh, do you want... We've got our caskets and we've got our partnership with the casket people, or if you want to be cremated, well, we got... We know the guy who has the ovens. We'll handle all the business stuff while you can do your grieving and whatnot. Yeah, that is what that is. Also, to answer the, the, the question about brain removal, it's difficult. It, the process is called excerebration, which is just awesome. The Wikipedia page is very, very short and only really has one source that is really sourcing Herodotus talking about it from the 5th hmm. century BC. Herodotus, okay. Yes. A very reliable source. Ah, yes. But then it talks about like the objects that they use, the little plant hook made out of uh, a monocotyledon plant, maybe like a palm or a bl- bamboo, which is just, you know, stuck in through the nose, pulled out. But it just says the liquid gets drained out before other embalming procedures. I think it was just, if you leave the brain in, the mummy goes bad. (laughs) 
and they just didn't huh. need to keep it around. Okay, so I am currently on a history.com video, and I don't want to watch the whole video because we're currently recording a podcast, but the little blurb for the video says, It was once thought that Egyptians used a hook to remove the brain through the nose when embalming bodies. However, it now seems that the brain was never removed and instead remained intact. Huh. Huh. See, that's odd because that that coincides with this Scientific American article that I'm looking at Uh called Ancient Egyptian Mummy Found with Brain But No Heart. It's by Owen Jarris and it's from 2014. And it's just talking about like a couple of weird mummies that they found where they pulled stuff out through like the abdomen, but the brain was left intact. And then it's hard to kind of explain why it's the article is mostly talking about like how they use specific medical imaging to determine these things. I think it just might be, we don't really know what they did with the brain. I mean, yeah, I guess it could have been different for each mummy Hmm. still on the, uh, the art, world article that i was talking about it does have a very very brief overview of the mummification process which specifically says just that those four big organs that we talked about for the canopic jars get removed and then the body is dried out with salt anointed with oil and wrapped with linen right and apparently loved ones would pay embalmers regular fees for the upkeep of the dead according to papyrus documents found in Saqqara over a hundred years ago. Interesting. The documents were found over a hundred years ago? The documents were found over a hundred years ago, and now that new archaeological site shows that that is indeed, like, practically the case, where people would pay repeatedly to make sure their loved ones were being, like, taken care of and kept nice in the underworld. Aw, I mean, that's kind of Also, nice. they found canopic jars containing mystery organs. Ah! <laughs> No! I like my no. identified. No! Don't like that. It's none of the main four, so what are they? They just they just goofed up. Oh, boss, I pulled the wrong... Oh, I got a spleen by accident. Oh, no. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Whoa, wait a minute. In that same line, I was about to... There's a, an article that I'm looking at from Live Science that's just called, Oops! Brain removal tool left in mummy's skull. <laughs> uh-huh. What's With the th- same fucking tone as, like, Captain Crunch oops all crunch bears. <laughs> oops all brain removing hook. But it's also by Owen Owen Jarris. Jar- Jarris. Oh. The same guy from the other article. It's from 2012. And it's, it's showing CT scans of a 2,400-year-old mummy. And they just found a piece of a, a plant stick in there. <laughs> The, it up in up all in the mummy. They were like, "What is this?" They put an endoscope in there, and they were like, "Oh my god, there's just a stick in there." They forgot it. Damn! Yikes. Although there is a, a quote in here taught saying that you know probably in museums in Egypt there are many other evidences of things like this. Uh, they were not found inside the skull. As a quote from Mislav Shavka, who's from Croatia, and so it, it does bring up the question of were these hooks actually for the brain? If we found them in other places where I guess the embalmers just forgot them because they had reeds lying around. I am currently reading a journal article I found on JSTOR from 1901 by Professor D.S. Lamb called Mummification, Especially of the Brain. Ah. (laughs) And he seems to be arguing that there was a variation in whether the brain was actually removed. From his research, he thinks that in approximately 56% of the times the brain was removed and in all the rest of the times it still remained. There. So yeah, it does seem like the brain hook thing is at least sort of a myth, or at the very least, mm-hmm. blown out of proportion by the culture. Yes, this is a mis- misconception. And just a random fact is that more than twice as often the brain was removed via the left nostril. 
as opposed to the right. Is there any theory as to why? No, nope. Okay. No theory. Just saying that. Here's something I want to draw your attention to, folks. There are two Wikipedia articles, which are a list of Egyptian mummies. One is royalty, the other is officials, nobles, and commoners. But at the very least, on the royalty article, and yes, also on the commoners article, there is a category on the list of Egyptian mummies whose header is disputed. Wait. (laughs) Wait a minute. Plain. I don't love the implications there. What it actually means is that these people may have been misidentified. Oh, thank God. (laughs) Either they were misidentified as royalty or like we're not sure if they're the exact person people claim they are. It is not disputed that they were mummified, to be clear. Thank God. (laughs) Oh, because that is so much worse. It is. Oh, on the officials, nobles, and commoners page, there is only one disputed mummy, but I know who this guy is. <gasps> Sanunma, oh. who the, this mummy is actually dubbed, quote, unknown man C. He was found in 1881, and despite initial reporting, no conclusive link has been found that actually makes anybody believe he's really that guy. But he was an advisor to the first female pharaoh, Hatshepsut. Oh. I played him in a play in sixth grade. Yes. Oh. Yes. Which- That's awesome. I mean, is it kind of weird that a bunch of white children did a play about Egyptian pharaohs? Maybe, but he was genuinely a really cool role. You, you remembered his name. Yeah. yeah, I remember my lines. Wow. I feel like we can't we can't talk about mummies and, and discovering mummies and kind of the scientific side without talking about the the that one infamous mummy voice box reconstruction. Oh yeah. I, I'm looking at CNN. And it's it's this honestly might might be a slightly different one because I'm remembering it as being like an older thing. But they they a bunch of scientists managed to doing a whole bunch of science things, 3D printing his his voice, the voice box of uh, Nessia Moon, who mm-hmm. was a, a priest during the, quote, politically volatile reign of Pharaoh Ramses the 11th between 1099 and 1069 BC. And the sound, Gus, maybe this is just something you could put in post, in which case you could just put it here. It says it says it's captured for this literally one second video on the BBC, which had a 20 second video ad in front of it. It says a vowel like sound reproduced uh, reminiscent of a sheep's bleat. It's just (laughs) (laughs) fucking kills me. Vowel like sound. Yeah. Not a vowel. Well, listen, hey, can you tell me if (laughs) is consonant or vowel? Well, it's vowel. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. This is going to actually out. be much funnier if I put the real sound in in post, and then every time you make that weird sound, I just replace it with the real one. No, don't silence me. <laughs> Mum- mummification analysis, super cool. We all know about, here's here's what I'm curious about. Maybe when you can look into this while I just talk about it. Uh, baboon mummies. Ooh. We're aware of, of Dartmouth professor Nate Domini. Nate Domini. Incredible man. His amazing work with baboon mummies. I'm curious as to how they were 
if they were treated any differently or the same, because there were other types of mummies that uh, Egyptians made. I've only seen the human ones in person. But yes, as has been said before in the, the lore of this show, we the three of us took a primatology class led by Professor Nate Domini, and he explained in, over the course of a class his whole work of trying to identify where the baboons in Egyptian art actually came from because they're not native necessarily to Egypt in that time. And then also apparently he's doing research on finding where Punt is with Egyptian baboon mummies, which is insane. If you Google baboon mummy, the number one hit is Nate Dominey's article <gasps> about yes. baboon mummies. This is a Nate Dominey Stan podcast now. <laughs> this actually is, I think actually every episode of this show is just us standing a different Dartmouth professor. Yes. Also, Wikipedia does have a whole section on animal mummification. And according to Wikipedia, mostly because I didn't find a lot of info about the process in the things that Nate Dominey wrote. So according to Wikipedia, most baboons were mummified with the use of plaster and buried in wooden chests. So there were baboons on canopic jars, as we've previously stated, but it doesn't seem as though there were canopic jars for baboons. Right. So they were pretty much just wrapped in plaster and buried. And this seems to be a a theme of other, I'm looking through this list wikipedia list although there are some exceptions like it notes crocodiles were in the early years of the the crocodile sobek cult they were lavishly mummified with gold and precious things but then gradually they kind of reverted towards just kind of wrapping up the crocodile and putting preserving agent on them and then putting them in boxes Mm -hmm. seems to be the way with most of these other animal mummies it seems that a lot of these animal mummies were specifically chosen because of their association with an egyptian god because you I, i mean i guess you don't really this is just wild speculation but maybe you don't care as much like what happens to the animal in the afterlife it's more of a symbol of like hey so back we think crocodiles are great <laughs> yeah i mean they started captive breeding and mummifying baboons in the later ptolemaic period according to this live science article that is mostly about nate domini our yes. hero so you know they were definitely breeding baboons in part to be offered as mummies mm. And also, I just, it's not about mummies themselves, but I just have to say this because it's so fucking cool that Nate Dominey is helping find where Punt is. For people who aren't aware, the civilization of Egypt for many, many years traded with a civilization called Punt. And there's a bunch of people who wrote about Punt and getting things from there, including baboons. But nobody ever wrote down where Punt was because like, (laughs) God, who wouldn't know where Punt was? We trade with them all the time. So now it's this like big sort of classical slash Egyptologist slash archaeological mystery of where the fuck was Punt? And Nate Dominey is using like molecular analysis of mummified baboon tissue in order to figure out where the baboons came from. And the New Kingdom baboons, this is quoting the Life Science article, were born outside of Egypt in the region that is modern-day Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Somalia, none of which share a border with Egypt. This suggests that Egyptian sailors were quite capable seafarers, able to traverse the length of the Red Sea, Domini said. Quote, Punt existed in the southern Red Sea region, very likely on the coasts of Eritrea and Somaliland, he wrote in his email to Live Science. The findings should be considered provisional and they'll need to study more baboon mummies, but holy shit, that's so much narrower than it used to be. Yes! I'm looking, we'll we'll link it in, there's a Dartmouth press release about this from from December of 2020, and it's showing like on a map, like a rough little region 
right in that area, right around the, the, the Horn of Africa. We're talking about strontium isotopes in baboon teeth from drinking the water. Then you could figure, it's amazing. And we took a class from this guy. We did. Oh, he's available for comment. We can email him. <laughs> I mean, we could email him anyway. know his normal email. Yes. <laughs> I have emailed him before. And I'll do it again. If I may, I would like to digress to talk about my favorite mummy of all time. Please oh, do. Uh, he's called the Toland Man, and he was found in 1950 in the Jutland Peninsula of Denmark. Was he a bog body? He was a bog body, and he's incredibly, ah. incredibly well preserved. If you look at his face, it's almost terrifying. Whoa. How much like a real live human face. Oh, that's fucked up. It mm. is. He was a human sacrifice, as many of the bog bodies were, who was very well preserved in the peat bogs of Northern Europe. And the reason that I love him is that the greatest band of all time, the Mountain Goats, <laughs> wrote a song about the Toland band from his perspective just before he is going to be sacrificed. Oh, my I God. I recommend you listen to. That's Damn. awesome. Oh, yeah. Wow. This is... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> bog, dude bog bodies are cool and also like way more terrifying than egyptian mummies yeah egyptian mummification there was a process to it and somehow the process makes it less scary mm-hmm. the idea that to make a joke that we've made many times mm. that nature just do that though <laughs> yeah yeah mm-hmm. i'm just looking at the wikipedia page for Tolland man because now evan you've I've never seen this thing that now is going to haunt my nightmares. Thank you, Evan. I'm sorry. One of the there's a line here from the the Silkeborg Public Library from an, from an article in 2013 that says his body and his face in particular were so well preserved that when they found him in 1950, he was mistaken for like a recent murder victim. When he's from the fourth century BCE, they were like, "Nah, this guy was was offed last week and dumped in the bog." Good Shit. lord. That's spooky. That is extremely spooky. To bring us back around to the far less spooky, intricate process of mummifying dead ancient Egyptians. Oh, cool. Yes, please. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the Book of the Dead. Yes. Yes. Because I got to see a complete Book of the Dead inscribed for a priest named Imhotep at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. As did I. I don't think we have time to sort of get into the politics of whether a museum in New York should have that or not. Uh, I don't even know if it's a replica or not. So I am not the person to expound upon this, but it is an important issue that should be talked about. But I also just want to talk about how fucking cool the Book of the Dead is. Yes! Because each section heading, according to Wikipedia, most of them begin with the word ro, which can apparently mean mouth, speech, spell, utterance, incantation, or chapter of a book. So it's not totally clear whether that was even supposed to be unambiguous or whether it was supposed to be like, yeah, this is a chapter and a spell and something you say. But the Book of the Dead is sort of subdivided into sections based on what is happening to the deceased as they descend into the underworld. Hmm. And there's all of these spells to like make sure they're okay and like preserve them in their journey to the underworld. And also the one at the Met is illustrated and there's some very good illustrations. In it. I remember that. Like there's a guy, there's a guy stabbing at a crocodile and the crocodile looks very cool, but also very smug. <laughs> that spirit, spirit crocodile don't give a fuck. Yeah. So according to Wikipedia, Almost every Book of the Dead was unique, but the Books of the Dead from the Sayite period, hmm. Sayite, 
period, tend to organize the chapters into four sections. Section one, the deceased enters the tomb and descends to the underworld, and the body regains its powers of movement and speech. Hmm. Section two, explanation of the mythic origin of gods and places. The deceased is made to live again so that he may arise reborn with the morning sun. Section three, the deceased travels across the sky in the sun arc as one of the blessed dead. In the evening, the deceased travels to the underworld to appear before Osiris. And last section, having been vindicated, the deceased assumes power in the universe as one of the gods. This section also includes assorted chapters on protective amulets, provision of food, and important places. You know, just some things that you might want to have in there. That's important. The Book of the Dead is super cool. Mummification is super cool. Yeah, every culture has interesting rituals around its dead, as Mitchell, who is currently taking a class on it, could definitely tell you. Yahoo. Mm -hmm. But I think just the sheer in-depthness of mummification and all of the the ritual and process and as it turns out business surrounding it Mm. makes it just endlessly fascinating speaking of things that are endlessly fascinating what have we learned today we've learned that the organs that you put or rather the jars that you put organs in after you pull them out during egyptian mummification are called canopic jars and they've got animals on them representing cardinal directions and specific egyptian gods and that the brain is not one of those the brain may or may not have been removed from the body of the mummy There is some debate on that point, but if it was removed, it was most likely removed through the nose via the left nostril. Ancient Egyptian funeral parlors contained actually savvy business people, and they sold a wide variety of services at a wide variety of prices. So you could get the mummification and the canopic jars and the funerary mask and the burial that you could afford. And like business people, they sometimes goofed up and (laughs) left their plant reeds in the body or left the brain intact or i mean what do you know you can't have a a, can't be fully successful (laughs) they also mummified animals including baboons which dartmouth professor nate dominey has used to find out where punt might have been dartmouth professor nate dominey is extremely cool we're going to be linking to his research in the show notes but also just look into him yourself he's so cool tolland man is evan's favorite mummy and it gives me nightmares now because it looks like a real guy who fell in a bog because that's what happened to him but it's remarkably well preserved oh god evan why do you like things that are this creepy There was obviously a lot of process and ceremony around mummifying people, including books of the dead, which were inscribed for individual people. There's a full book of the dead in the Met inscribed for a priest named Imhotep. It sort of contains spells to preserve the deceased in their journey to the afterlife and make sure that when they go through judgment, they don't get fucked. That's all there is to know about mummies. That's all. Yeah, we have covered hundreds of years of Egyptology in half an hour. Yep, it's done now. Oh, and we might know where Punt is now, also because of Nate Dominey. Yep, found it. Well, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. If you like the show, please share it with a friend. If you hate the show, please throw it into the crocodile's mouth so that it may eat our hearts for eternity. <laughs> and either way, follow us on Instagram. It's at 3DWPCast. I'm Gus. I'm Mitchell. I'm Evan. And this has been Three Dudes Wearing Plaid. Have a great day. Next time on Three Dudes Wearing Plaid. But if you can't do that, the sound is, the sound is just like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> now, why would I put it in post when we can just have you making that sound? Find out next week on Three Dudes Wearing Plaid. Mm.